0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, February 27th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we are here with our friend Truthvids to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 29 of the series where once again we continue our discussion of particular passages in Paul's epistles where certain terms are either mistranslated or misunderstood, and those mistranslations or misunderstandings adversely affect the interpretation of scriptures throughout the entire New Testament. Due to the nature and purpose of paul's writings, there are many more of these than there are in all of the other New Testament scriptures. I believe this may be the third presentation on Paul's epistles or maybe the fourth or fifth i have lost track i don't i don't know about you. Good morning, truthvids. How are you doing
1: yeah, hey bill thanks Henry. uh all good. So um yeah we're on to Ephesians and a lot of this epistle is to do with uh predestination and um modern Christians they had it slightly distorted. They imagined it was people that Yahweh had predestined to choose Christianity and that you know it's all about choosing uh Christ. And that you know that's what it was but in reality it was the genetic descendants from Abraham who would um, you know be born and live amongst those generations you know there's a lot of generations many centuries and they would be Christian not not because they they chose to be Christian but because they would be born within that timeline and would be descended from Abraham and, and you know, when uh, Yahweh Christ created the world, he, he already knew it, right? He even knew he was the lamb slain before the world. So, so that's what it means essentially by predestination, right, Bill?
0: Well, well absolutely. It, it's predestined because he chose his people, Israel, back there in the Old Testament and predestined them and them alone. And, and that's explicitly stated in so many of the prophecies. But this, to me, and and there's a lot of ways to demonstrate this in, in Scripture when you compare the Scripture to the doctrines of churches, these denominational churches, and especially the Roman Catholic Church. During the Reformation, there were these debates between... Um, People who supported Calvin and people who supported Arminius. I don't know if Calvin and and Arminius ever debated one another in person. What they had was um, competing theologies. And in Calvinism, they believe in predestination. But along the lines that you explained... That certain people in every race and nation are predestined to believe in Jesus, where Arminius he pushed this this concept of foreknowledge, but even his concept of foreknowledge was not the foreknowledge of of God as it 's described in scripture and and this Psalm. Um, this debate has been ongoing throughout the entire protestant period and and even to this very day protestants argue about the predestination of calvin as opposed to the foreknowledge of arminius so what paul what what paul of tarsus actually taught was predestination and foreknowledge but not the predestination or foreknowledge of men but of God and and those whom he predestined those he foreknew though and and the king james version uses the word predestinate and and we'll actually cite that passage later here this evening but if If Yahweh God predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, well, he, he had called, past tense, not whom he calls. He called those whom he did predestinate, and that's past tense. Then he also called. And that's past tense to be conformed to the image of his son and those whom he called, those he justified, and that's past tense. And he foreknew. It, it's both are, are necessary in order to be one of the people that fit into this description so it's not only those whom he had for predestinated, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. And that's a past tense. So he, it, this isn't future tense verbs where when you were born 2,000 years later, you could say, oh, I'm one of the predestinated because i believe in jesus that's not what's going on here these verbs are already past tense verbs indicating that yahweh god had predestinated and foreknew these people in the past and that can only be spoken of the children of israel that can't describe anybody else as we will demonstrate in, in this epistle to the Ephesians, we're actually going to go back and discuss that passage of Romans. Because, as, as you mentioned, Ephesians is about predestination. That, that's also a significant theme in this epistle.
1: And um, what, what, everything you said is in perfect contrast to what Christ said to the other people. I never knew you, right?
0: Well, well right. Get away from me! I never knew you. That there are, um, and and that's a very good point. The in in the gospel, Christ describes people who had done things in his name, um, cast out demons in his name, and and even did certain miracles in his name. And he says, "Get away from me." Ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. So if he didn't know them ahead of time, why would that be? And, and the only way, and, and okay, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name, cast out devils. And in thy name, done many wonderful works. So those people believe How could you say those people don't believe? And he didn't reject them on the basis of disbelief. He rejects them on the basis of not having known them. And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Why would they be working iniquity? Yahweh said in Amos that To the children of Israel, that you are the only family I have known in all the earth, period. To know someone, of, of course, God knows everybody on the planet. But to know someone in that sense is to um, accept them as familiars and to acknowledge them. So only the children of Israel were known in, by God. In, in those senses and he says therefore i will punish you for your iniquities i mean you might know a hundred women but you only know your wife in an intimate relationship hopefully so so those other 99 women you, you could say to your wife you're the only woman i know and and you're not lying, even though you know the names and faces of 99 other women. So so, that word no is, is that's the sense of that word no, is, it appears in Amos chapter three. So here where Christ says to these men, I never knew you, he must be referring to that sort of relationship that they are not of the children of Israel, And they're demanded to depart from him, and he accuses them of having worked iniquity. Why would they be working iniquity if they're doing things in his name? And basically, because they're doing wonderful works in his name, they're glorifying his name. So how could they be working iniquity? And there's only one way to explain that in Scripture, and that is the fact that the children of Israel were told to be a separate people. And if you're violating, if you're among the children of Israel and you're not one of the children of Israel, you're violating that. You are working iniquity. The Apostle Jude and and the Apostle Peter both wrote about such interlopers, intruders, um, false brethren snuck in unawares in in their epistles. So that's how they would be workers of iniquity. And that's the only way that they could be workers of iniquity. There's nothing else that would explain that. They're not accused of any um, cardinal sins, That They're not accused of doing anything wrong. They're only rejected on the basis that Christ did not know them. Because he is Yahweh God who professed that he only knew the children of Israel. And I think we're going to hit on this subject again in in the notes here before this program ends. I don't know if you have anything to add to that.
1: No, that's great. We could get straight into it.
0: Well, discussing the epistle to the Galatians... Over the last two weeks, I believe, right? We, we hope to have demonstrated that Paul's language in chapters three and four of that epistle had purposely narrowed the scope of the gospel to one particular race of people. I, I should actually say that it had purposely described the narrow scope of the gospel as being for one particular race of people which are the descendants of only one of the sons of abraham as opposed to the other sons which abraham had sired doing that paul also identified that race of people in part where he told the galatians that it was they who were under the law it was they who were there who were therefore redeemed in christ So comparing our interpretation of Paul's epistle to the words of the prophets, the two are in complete agreement, while the mainstream interpretations set Paul in absolute opposition to the prophets. So by that, we must know that our interpretation is true. And and if Our interpretation of Paul's epistles agrees with everything which is written in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Daniel, the other prophets. Then we know that we're on the right path because Christ came to uphold the prophets, not to destroy them. So now we shall move on to Paul's other other epistles, beginning with the epistle to the Ephesians. I really thought preparing this that we would go beyond Ephesians, but it's just not going to happen. Not today. I mean, I pray it happens in our next presentation, but not today. So we're going to start with Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. Actually, verses 4 through 7 I'm going to read from the King James Version. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Having predestinated us, I didn't realize it was coming so quick when we discussed it in in our um, banter before we got started a few minutes ago, right? (laughs) Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, By Yahshua Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace." And we're going to that there's other things we could discuss here, like the forgiveness of sins had to be related to the law because sin is transgression of the law. And where there is no law, as as Paul of Tarsus explained in Romans chapter five, there that there may be sin in the world, but where there is no law, sin is not imputed. And when sin is not imputed, then sin doesn't have to be forgiven. How does sins not imputed have to be forgiven? Sins not imputed are merely overlooked because there is no law. If um, okay, if there's no law, we were just talking about traveling and, and speeding a few minutes ago before this recording started um, because I'm being, going to be traveling next week. So we're talking about traveling and, and speeding and things like that. So, so if there's no law in my state against speeding with an automobile and you are doing 100 miles an hour down a road to get home, there's no law against speeding there may be laws in other states against speeding but not our state and and i'm using this as as a hypothetical situation but how can i even though you were speeding according to the common perception of, of how fast one should be going in order to travel safely and that's subjective right but even though you may have been speeding, does that mean that I should hold a grudge against you if there's no law against speeding or that I should have a cause against you or an accusation against you if there's no law against speeding? Well, of course not. So where there is no law, as Paul explained, sin is not imputed because there is no law. So these other races of people were never given the law. So sin is not imputed. They don't have any need for forgiveness. They might die in their sins, but they don't have a need for forgiveness. Where's the need for forgiveness if they were never given the law? It doesn't exist. So these, all these little things which Paul says, which just sound nice to most Christians, most Christians don't consider what the scripture is saying. They just sort of go along with the general flow of, of church teachings and, and don't realize that these things only apply to the children of Israel who have the law. <laughs> I, I, it, it's all about context. That's the scriptural context. That's an aspect that cannot probably be neglected, The word pro that's a compound word. It, uh, pro I'm, I'm going to, um I'm, I'm going to look at this a, a little more closely. That this is a, a, another digression. Pro-orizo means to determine beforehand or pre But that word, or read so it it has to do with actually marking off something and and setting it aside and I believe that you would use that term in relation to land boundaries and and things like that, so i'm going to look that up real quick I'm sorry i didn't think to do this when 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 i um but when I had prepared my notes, but I should. The, the word pro-orizo is a compound word. And of course, pro means before. To do something ahead of time. To be before something or towards or to. So, orizo in Ludell and Scott in their definition is to divide or separate from as a boundary. So, This means, this word predestinate means that ahead of time, before time, you were separated and divided as a boundary. When did that happen? That happened when Yahweh God told the children of Israel that they would be a separate people And they would be peculiar to him and distinct from all the other people of the earth. That is the only thing that this word could possibly refer to, because it's not simply orizo, that you're separated. It's pro-orizo, that you are receiving the gospel of Christ because you were separated beforehand. And that's translated as predestinate. But predestinate doesn't tell the whole story. It should perhaps be translated as pre-separated. Because that's what orizo means. Pre-separated. So who was pre-separated? And and that would mean separated before Christ. Separated before the, the crucifixion. To be pre-separated by God. Wow. And that only describes the children of Israel. Nobody else could ever claim that that describes them.
1: And uh, if you separate um, a group of people, it also includes all their descendants, right? Uh, As long as they don't mix forever, essentially.
0: Well, right. And, And that began with Isaac... When Abraham put him on the altar and dedicated him to God, Isaac's seed became distinct from all other people on the earth. And that includes Jacob and Esau, but that's for two different reasons, as we learn in, 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 throughout the prophets and in Romans, that the Edomites are vessels of destruction because Esau mixed. As Paul said, he was a profane person and a fornicator so his descendants are excluded for that reason they're bastards as paul also stated in in plain language that's not so plain in the king james version or in the church interpretations but it's in plain language in hebrews chapter 12 the reason why esau couldn't find repentance it wasn't because he he wasn't repentant. It was because he was a pro, he 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 was a fornicator. <laughs> he, he never had legitimate sons. So this pro orizo really means pre-separated, because orizo means to separate or or to mark something off. And and I, I believe it's related to the to, to the word oros, which is a mountain or perhaps a district. I actually forgot, or maybe it's both. I I don't quite remember my entire Greek vocabulary, but orizo means to separate something, and pro-orizo must mean to pre-separate something. That is the meaning of that word predestinate, or the Greek original term (laughs) that was translated as predestinate. Because predestinate to us, um, I think that we see that word in a whole different manner than we would see pre-separated. Predestinate is perhaps more ethereal. I don't know how you see the the meaning of that word.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, I get what you mean. More like a individual basis rather than uh, the entire race was separated
0: well well yeah, that's absolutely true that that's absolutely true, but I think that predestinate or or predestined it it has a um a more subjective meaning. here we have um predestinate definition by Merriam Webster. And I believe that the church definition is leaking into the definition of the word. To foredain to an earthly or eternal lot by destiny or by divine or destiny by divine decree, right? So the church, the religious meaning leaks into the dictionary meaning and and that's because that's the only place where we see this word it is in a religious use it's destined fated or determined beforehand in in its primary meaning i don't know how you could with any honesty separate the determined beforehand part from the fact that only the children of israel were ever separated unto god and how you could change that when you get to Paul's epistles. Because Paul's talking about those who were under the law. He's talking about those who needed forgiveness of sin. We can't separate this concept from the context of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. When he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. And Paul said in Galatians that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. So, so you can't separate these, these concepts from the children of Israel. And that's our point here, is that Paul of Tarsus never attempted to separate these concepts from the children of Israel of the Old Testament. In the King James Version, this word pro-orizo is also translated "predestinate." or predestinated, in Romans 8.29 and and 8.30, which are the passages we read a little earlier, or, or that I paraphrased a little earlier in this discussion at the beginning. And it's in Acts chapter 4, verse 28, it is determined before. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, it is ordained before. But the primary meaning of the word is pre-separated or separated before. The foundation of the world, which we see here, that these Christians were predestinated before the foundation of the world. That, that word world is society. And, and that's the story of the Bible that these people, the the foundation of the world is seen in the story of the Bible. While there was a race of men which were created, the Adamic race, there were no men chosen for any particular purpose until Abraham. And we may read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, where Moses, speaking of Yahweh God, said to the children of Israel, And because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them and brought thee out of his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt. That's when the Israelites were predestinated for that reason before the foundation of the world. So even after the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites... We read in Isaiah chapter forty-one, and, and Isaiah chapter forty-one is is it's always um, these last twenty-five chapters of Isaiah are seen by many scholars and academics, theologians, as a separate book of Isaiah, and often they claim that it was written by a different Isaiah later on, and that's not true. Isaiah had um, two purposes for writing. The first 40 chapters are mostly to do with the children of Israel as they are being deported out of the land, as they're being taken away by the Assyrians into captivity. And then the last 26 chapters of Isaiah have to do with the, the same children of Israel, but they are already in captivity. So that are being addressed from a different context than the first 40 chapters. And that's the reason for the two different um, attitudes expressed, the two different perspectives which are expressed in those two parts of Isaiah, the first 40 chapters and, and the last 26. And then in Isaiah chapter 41, we read from verse 8, but thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. This is after the deportations and captivities of most of Israel. Of course, the people and the inhabitants of Jerusalem are still there when Isaiah is writing this. But all the other Israelites and even most of Judah was taken away with them into the Assyrian captivity. So, in verse 9, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away, not cast thee away, even though now they are being pushed to the ends of the earth in, in their captivity, he has not cast them away, and he has still chosen them Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. Yeah, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And this is addressed to Israelites who are already in captivity. Some of them for, as not now, if Isaiah, I believe Isaiah wrote these chapters after the deportations of most of judah the 46 fenced cities of judah and the siege of jerusalem which failed which they were not able to take and that certainly seems to be the case that all of this is written around 700 to 698 697 bc after the failed siege of judah which Isaiah had prophesied a little earlier in in his books and and related the history of a little earlier in his books that the Assyrians would not be able to take Judah. So Isaiah is still alive. And after most of Israel is long into Assyrian captivity, he's writing these passages and... Yahweh, he's stating explicitly throughout these 26 chapters that Yahweh God has still chosen and and called and has promised to preserve and has promised to regather and, and have returned to him these people that were taken off into captivity. And this theme is repeated several times throughout the rest of the book of Isaiah. And then over a hundred years later, speaking in reference uh, over a hundred years after the deportations of Israel, speaking in reference to both Israel and Judah, we read in Jeremiah chapter 33, considerest thou not what this people have spoken saying. In other words, don't consider what these people have spoken saying. The two families which Yahweh has chosen, he has even cast them off. Jeremiah is telling us not to consider the fact that Yahweh cast them off because he didn't consider that. Even though he has cast them off, that he would that there's still the chosen, that, that that's not going to change. So in spite of that, Jeremiah chapter 31, in Jeremiah chapter 31, and in Ezekiel chapter 37, we read promises of a new covenant with those same people, and with them alone. So even though the children of Israel were cast off, that doesn't mean that they're not still the chosen, and it's them alone who were predestinated. So in Isaiah we read of redemption for Israel in chapter 41, the same chapter. For I, Yahweh thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Fear not, thou worm Jacob, and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And then in chapter 44 Thus saith Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And then later in that same chapter, Sing, O ye heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth, break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein, for Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. And thus saith Yahweh, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am Yahweh that makes all things, that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself. And, and these are constant promises to Israel in captivity that, and an announcement that he's redeemed them, even though Christ hadn't yet come. And, and that's because, as Paul says in Romans, he calls things not existing or not yet existing as existing. Because he is sure that it is he being God. He is absolutely sure that he is going to redeem them, that he's already spoken, speaking as if he had already redeemed them. He's speaking as if he had already redeemed them because he's absolutely positive that he's going to come as Christ and, and redeem them and be their redeemer. So we read in Isaiah chapter 48, thus saith Yahweh, the redeemer, the holy one of Israel. I am Yahweh thy God, which teaches thee to profit, which leads thee by the way that thou should go. So these prophetic references to the children of israel are just as valid as the messianic prophecies which are found throughout these same scriptures and a lot most of these are parts of or elements of messianic prophecy looking forward to christ and and the apostles had cited these same passages of isaiah very often in reference to that same thing, that they refer to the redemption which is in Christ. So how could the people suddenly change if these are the chosen called pre-separated people? So in Isaiah chapter 49, we read, thus saith Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel. So who did Christ redeem? But these people that were pre-separated, "...and his Holy One, to whom, to him whom man despises, to him whom the nation abhors, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of Yahweh that is faithful." Well, if he had changed his people in the New Testament, how could he be called faithful when he says these things to the children of Israel? and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee, Isaiah 49.7, where it says he shall choose thee, it speaks of the children of Israel, and not the Jews, and not some church. Speaking of the children of Israel, in the Babylonian captivity, in the 78th Psalm, Asaph wrote, and they remembered that God was their rock, and the high God their Redeemer. And Asaph was a prophet of the captivity. Those Psalms were written, the Psalms of Asaph, in the captivity. So this has never changed. The the nature of the separated or pre-separated people and the identity of the pre-separated people has never changed.
1: Bill, I just had a question. Sorry, um... The the Israelites who left the main body, um, like mostly the Dan and Greeks and, and the Trojan Romans, that they wouldn't have been with Moses and sworn under the law technically, right? But but nonetheless, uh, Christ still had to redeem them as well from their sins. Well,
0: absolutely, and they're the wild olives. That's why Paul called them wild olives in Romans chapter eleven, I believe, or maybe it's twelve. I don't remember. <laughs> It's one or the other. In, in, in the wild olive analogy, even though they're wild because they didn't have the experience of Moses in Sinai, they're still olives being grafted back into that tree. The, that There are other prophecies in Isaiah. There's a prophecy of the captivity of Egypt and the captivity of Assyria. So why would Yahweh still have to bring back the captivity of Egypt? And there's another reference, I'm sorry, that's in Jeremiah, perhaps. No, I'm sorry, it's in Ezekiel, chapter 29. I thought it was in Isaiah. Ezekiel, chapter 29. Yet thus saith Yahweh God. At the end of 40 years, will I gather the Egyptians from the people whither they were scattered, and I will bring again the captivity of Egypt, and I will cause them to return under the land of Pathros, into the land of their habitation. What does he mean by that? There is um, the Egyptians, and there is the captivity of Egypt. And I would say that they are two different things. They're not the same. In, and, and I'm going to look for this passage. Okay. And this is probably even more relevant. Isaiah eleven sixteen, And there shall be a highway for the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria, like as it was to Israel in the day that he came up out of the land of Egypt. So that's a reference to the Exodus. And then we see in Isaiah chapter 19, in that day there shall be a highway out of Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian shall come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria. The Egyptians shall serve with the Assyrians. In that day shall Israel be the third with Egypt and with Assyria, even a blessing in the midst of the land. Whom Yahweh of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, mine inheritance. Now, Should we take Egypt and Assyria there literally? Because Yahweh said that I will make a full land of all the nations where I have scattered thee, and he said that twice in Jeremiah, and that would count both Egypt and Assyria. Egypt was also given up to the enemies of God in Isaiah chapter 43. So those references to Egypt, do we take them literally as referring to Egyptians? No, we can't, because if we do, then it conflicts with a hundred other prophecies, at least. But if we understand Egypt and Assyria in those passages to be references to the captivity of Israel that was in Egypt and the captivity of Israel that was in Assyria, then the passages make perfect sense and they don't conflict with any other scriptures a highway out of uh, out of egypt and to assyria means that there will that there will be a way to god for the people that were in the egyptian captivity but who didn't necessarily go with moses into sinai and the people that were were taken in the Assyrian captivity. It's referring to the captivities, which were Israelites in captivity in Egypt and in Assyria. And they will be one again with Israel. That's what it's meaning.
1: (coughs) I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and if you said to a man um, who had a hundred... Uh, generations of descendants go fetch every descendant it would be impossible right but but for god it's not with, with his gospel he was able to do it right
0: well, well right through the gospel he was able to return his people to him
1: also bill do you think those um two captivities we went through were kind of preparation and warming up for the one we're going through now in a way
0: <sighs> well well i, I don't I don't really see it that way because we, most of our people do not have it in their collective memory that they were ever captive. Yeah, true. In in hindsight, we will know that we were captives, but that time for hindsight, I don't think that comes until the return of Christ. And I believe there were actually scriptures that allude to that but it would probably take me too long to find them. I'd have to sit and think about how they're worded, that we would remember the captivity or something similar to that. If, according to the words of Paul, those who were redeemed by the cross of Christ were preordained or determined before, then when was that determination made? if it was made in a manner which differs from the words of these prophets. So who is preordained? And how do we determine who is preordained? Just because they claim to believe in Jesus? Or were they preordained or pre-separated in the words of the Old Testament prophets? There is absolutely no scripture supporting the preordination of anyone for the purposes of redemption or salvation outside of the children of Israel. The truth is that the only people who who were redeemed were those who were under the law in the first place, as Paul described in Galatians, and they were predestinated before the foundation of the world. Paul of Tarsus, who constantly cited the prophets, was not contradicting the prophets so we read in romans chapter 8 and we know that all things work together for good to them that love god to them who are called who are the called according to his purpose now the language here is very specific language where is the purpose of god foretold Only in the Old Testament prophets. Who are the called? If Yahweh says in the Old Testament prophets, speaking to the children of Israel, over and over again as we read, and that's why we read all these passages of Isaiah, I have chosen thee. I have called thee. So when we get to the New Testament and all of those prophecies are messianic prophecies of Christ, When we get to the New Testament, who is the called? Only those same children of Israel. They were the only people who were redeemed, the only people who were called, and the only people who were predestinated or pre-separated. For whom he did foreknow, Romans 8.29. Who did he foreknow when Paul wrote this? if we go back into those same prophets, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate or pre-separate, which is the most literal meaning of the word, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate or pre-separate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. And when we go to the end of Isaiah chapter 45, Yahweh's telling the children of Israel to look unto me and be saved. There is no God beside me, a just God, and a Savior. And then we see another reference to the ends of the earth that we saw earlier in Isaiah. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Why? Because the children of Israel were pushed to the ends of the earth. So they are whom he's addressing. For I am God, and there is none else. And the proof of that interpretation is at the end of the chapter, In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. So if Paul said that those whom he pre-separated and called and then, them he also justified and whom he justified, them he also glorified. How could that be taken out of the context of Isaiah chapter 45, verse 25? In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. Then he also justified and whom he justified them. He also glorified. And I'm sorry, I got to laugh because it's absolutely incredible to me that any church does not teach this.
1: And it's they, astonishing that they never looked at that and thought, well, this our doctrine doesn't make sense. You know, you well, think well, if you read the Old Testament, you could put it together and must realize that he's come for the Israelites. Right. Even in the New Testament.
0: You have to. It's the only valid conclusion. There, there's no other valid conclusion. So they try to change the identity of Israel. But the Bible says that it. it it's in Isaac's seed, not in Christ, which is what, which the church tries to tell us is the seed, but it's in Isaac that Abraham's seed would be called. So who would have called? And that's right in Paul, in Paul of Tarsus, in Romans chapter 9, as well as in Genesis. And Paul wasn't taking it out of the context of the promises, he was putting it into the context of the promises. (laughs) Paul's language is very explicit and it's very exacting. And they do their best to obfuscate the meanings and obscure the meanings of the words. But predestinate should be pre-separate or separated beforehand. So in that passage in Romans, Paul illustrates three criteria one must meet in order to be justified and glorified by God. One must be, first, called according to the purpose of God. Second, one must be one of those whom God foreknew. And third, one must be one of the predestinated or pre-separated, which is the meaning of the word. In verse 30 of Romans, Paul is explaining that the called are the foreknown and predestinated. But in Isaiah chapter 41, which we have already cited here, the prophet informs us that the children of Jacob are the called and the chosen. But thou, Israel, art my servant. Jacob whom I have chosen, the seed, meaning the physical descendants, of Abraham, my friend. Thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee. And this is when the children of Israel are already in captivity. So Yahweh says in Isaiah, and not cast thee away, even though they're in captivity. And in Amos chapter 3, we see that Yahweh God only knew the children of Israel out of all the families of the earth. And it says, hear this, the word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family, there's that word family, which the family of the faith in Paul's epistles, which I brought up from the land of Egypt saying, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So they required forgiveness for their sins. But nobody else ever required that forgiveness because sin is not imputed where there is no law. So where we read in Isaiah chapter 44 that Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel, we must understand that if Israel is the called, chosen, and foreknown, then Israel is also the predestinated or pre-separated, and there are no others. Now, if that passage, if that word proorizo had been translated as pre-separated, there would be absolutely no qualms about it referring to the ancient children of Israel. But it's not. It's predestinated in in the King James Version. It might also even be predestinated in the Christianian New Testament. I haven't even looked yet. I, I don't even remember how I translated it. But when, when you're making a translation it's difficult to even address every possible error of interpretation it it really is in the christianian new testament it's not predestinated it is because those whom he has known beforehand he has also appointed beforehand Conform to the image of his son. So that might even be more explicit if I had translated it as separated beforehand. But like I said, when you're making a translation, it's hard to um, focus on every single misunderstanding of Scripture. And it is. But if it was pre-separated or separated beforehand, then... It would even be more clear that this is referring to the children of Israel, but predestinated. Well, that could have some ethereally new age sense, where you imagine that, like Calvin did, that people that believe in Jesus out of any race or nation that they're the predestinated. Yet, yeah, but that's perverting. Paul's, the context that Paul uses that term in, in his epistle.
1: And uh, that kind of goes against predestination, right? Because it's more you decide in your mind what you think rather than Yahweh choosing you. Absolutely. So, so it's a bit contradictory.
0: It's absolutely contradictory. I, I, I can't, it, it's horrible. But this is, um... Church doctrine, which denominational Christians have accepted for hundreds of years now, ever since the Reformation. That's when this was developed, is with Calvin in the Reformation. Because it's not Catholic. that The Catholic universal church it is a different beast, and I don't even know what they think about. The references to predestination and and being foreknown in in Paul's epistles. I don't even think they care about them, to be honest with you. I, I don't know. I don't know what they teach, even though I was raised Catholic. We never got that in catechism. Not that I ever remember. I guess you have to become a priest and get that at the seminary level. Maybe. I don't even know if they address those passages. In Catholic Church, they don't open the Bible; they really don't. The next passage we must examine, in this same light, is found in Ephesians chapter two, and I'll read from verse eleven from the King James Version. Wherefore, remember that you, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, now that's kind of ridiculous on its surface, right? Because the word Ethnos means nations and bodies of people that by nature are nations in in the flesh, right? I, I mean, it's a ridiculous translation. Wherefore, remember, that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were sometimes were far off, are made near by the blood of Christ. And and this translation to me is odd in several ways. First, where it has in verse 11, that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, it is suggesting that perhaps the Ephesians were no longer Gentiles in the flesh. And if by Gentile, they believe Paul is referring to non-Jews, does that mean that Gentiles converted to Christianity, because they're not Gentiles any longer, somehow become Jews? (laughs) That's how they interpret it. And if so, and, then how could there be people who are not Christians that are called Jews? So so my point is that the King James Version translation always causes confusion.
1: Yeah, did they become Gentiles then? <laughs> right. It's weird.
0: It, it is weird. It makes no sense. But notice that in that clause, the King James Version added a word which is not in the original, which is being. They had to add that being in in order to have their interpretation make literal sense. But furthermore, the word aliens in verse 12, being aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel. That word is actually a verb aliens in verse 12 is a noun in english aliens is a noun but the greek word from which it was translated apollotio is a verb which means to estrange or to alienate it's not a noun so in that same passage in the christianian new testament It reads, on which account you must remember, this is verse 11, on which account you must remember that you, that at one time you, the nations in the flesh, which are the so-called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcised made by hand in the flesh, you, the nations in the flesh, Paul is telling these people that they are the nations in the flesh, What nations? We'll discuss that soon. Verse 12. Because you had, at that time, been apart from Christ. Having been alienated from the civic life of Israel. That's the proper way that that verb should be translated in the form in which it's in. Past tense. Having been alienated. That would be Past tense and passive. I want to see that the form of the verb is a participle and it's a perfect passive nominative masculine plural verb. So because it's perfect, that's past tense. And it's a verb, so you have to write having been alienated, being a, being a participle. So these people were alienated at one time. They were never aliens. There's a difference. If you um, I don't know, you're in your your job, your workplace, and you have two friends, and one of them's a Negro, and the other one used to be your friend, but you had a falling out, and he's not your friend any longer. So the Negro is an alien to you, because he's of a different race, he's an outsider, but your friend, who was not your friend any longer, is alienated. And he used to be your friend, but now he's estranged from you. And that's what apolotrio means. It's a verb which means to estrange or to alienate. And it's not a noun. In order for these people to have been alienated, the only way that is possible is that they were at one time one of the people of God. They were at one time God's people but they were alienated. So they were alienated from what? From the civic life of Israel. And and that that that's a, another word the King James version has alienated from the Commonwealth of aliens from the Commonwealth of Israel. But that word commonwealth is polytuma, and and it, it's the same word from which we get politics from and and it it's basically defined as the the administration of civil affairs a state or commonwealth well the people aren't a state it's a group of people the third definition is citizenship the rights of a citizen so Paul's speaking to people who at one time were citizens of Israel, but now they're alienated from the citizenship or, or the, as the king, as the Christagenet New Testament has, that the civic life of Israel. So these Ephesians are former Israelites. This word ethnos, of course, does not mean Gentile. It means nation. The Ephesians were among the nations in the flesh, as Paul says here. And as Paul had explained in Romans chapter 4, that the promise of Abraham was to the nations which would come of his seed, thus thy seed shall be. And as Paul described the pagan nations of Europe as Israel, According to the flesh, in First Corinthians chapter 10, that it was the, the, the people who were, what were making sacrifices at the pagan altars of Europe, that they were Israel according to the flesh, as Paul called them, having been descendants of the ancient Israelites. they had been alienated from God. They had been alienated from the civic life of Israel but now they had an opportunity to be reconciled to God in Christ. Being alienated from the commonwealth or civic life, as the word, it's politia, may be translated. And that's the word, like I said, that we get politics from. We also get other words from politia, such as police and policy. Being alienated does not mean that they were aliens as compared to Israelites. It means that they used to be Israelites who were now estranged. Only Israelites could be alienated from the civic life of Israel, as Israelites were commanded to be a separate people in the first place. So Paul is telling the Ephesians that they are descendants of the ancient Israelites who were alienated from Israel, Period. And all of this language is twisted and obscured by taking verbs and making them into nouns and, and by strange translations, adding words and making strange translations. Like, you used to be a nation in the flesh. You used to be a Gentile in the flesh. You're not anymore. So what are you, a Jew? If Gentile means non-Jew, as they define it. And if you walk up to any denominational Christian that I've ever seen and ask him, what's a Gentile? He's going to say, oh, a person is not a Jew. That's what the average churchgoer would say. So if you're not a Gentile anymore, then you're a Christian, then why aren't you a Jew? Okay. Well, we could probably pick up a lot of silly arguments, but the fact is that the King James translation of the passage that's silly. That's really silly.
1: Yeah, and it immediately leads to the question, well, what about those people who are born before Christ who are Gentiles? Well, they're doomed, aren't they? I guess. You know, and there's like loads of arguments where intelligent people can look at it and think, well, this doesn't really make sense.
0: They should. But the, the sad fact is that most churchgoers don't question the translations. They take it for granted that the King James Bible is the Word of God or or whatever their favorite Bible is, it's the Word of God, the way it's translated, so it has to make sense and and all of the um conflicts and, and I don't know, it's some kind of cognitive dissonance that they ignore all the conflicts and, and all the um contradictory conclusions that have to be made when you take it for granted that the King James Bible is the Word of God. Later in the same chapter, at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19, we see another word, paroikos, which is sojourners, and it's certainly not foreigners, as the King James Version had translated it there. So, in verse 19, the King James Version reads, now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now, according to Liddell and Scott, paroicus is an adjective which means dwelling beside or near. So I don't know how that could be translated as foreigner, except from a particular perspective. So, they define it where it is used as a substantive, which is a noun, because it's actually an adjective. And very often, verbs and adjectives are used by nouns, as nouns in Greek, but only in particular contexts and particular grammatical constructs. So, where it's a substantive, it is a sojourner or an alien, as they define it, and that for that definition, they cite the New Testament. But the corresponding noun, paroikia, is a sojourning in a foreign land, where they also cite the New Testament. But there are other ways to say alien, to refer to people of another race, Specifically, there's um, Alotrius, which we've seen in, in the Gospel of Luke. And a paroikos can only be an alien if he is engaged in a paroikia, which is a sojourning. And then he's an alien only from the perspective of the people of the land where he's sojourning if you go to um nigeria would you consider yourself an alien you would only consider yourself an alien in the perspective of the nigerians to the nigerians you would be an alien because you're a stranger you look different you act different you speak different so you're an alien to them But you're not an alien to yourself, and when you return home, you're not an alien. Are the Nigerians aliens to the Nigerians? Of course not. You can only be, if you're a sojourner, you can only be an alien from the perspective of the people in the land where you are sojourning. But here, the Ephesians to whom Paul writes are not in Israel, or in any other land but Ephesus. So being Ephesians in Ephesus, they cannot be aliens in the manner of a paroichus unless they are not originally from Ephesus. So if they are Israelites, who were scattered among the nations by Yahweh, as we read in the prophets, then they would be sojourners, as Paul is describing them as having been alienated from Israel. Sojourners are emigrants. They're not immigrants. There's a difference. A people alienated from their own nation and living abroad are sojourners for that reason. But Paul could not have called the Ephesians paroichus if they were in Ephesus, unless they were really not originally from Ephesus. Ephesians in Ephesus, if they were always from Ephesus, would be in their own land. How could they be called paroikos, aliens or sojourners? Speaking of the punishment of Israel, we read in Jeremiah chapter 14 from the Septuagint. O Lord, thou art the hope of Israel, and deliverest us in time of troubles. Why art thou become as a sojourner upon the land, or as one born in the land yet turning aside for a resting place? And there, in that passage, we see the same word paroikos, where in English we see the word sojourner. Moving on to Ephesians chapter two, verses twenty through 22 unless you have something to add about sojourners
1: well uh, i was actually going to bring it up at the end but but also a lot of this is often used in all the introduction to all the epistles like to the sojourners to the elect to the anointed it all shows that the letters are addressed to the israelites right uh, i believe peter says to the sojourners
0: Yes, Peter calls them, as the King James has it,
1: to the strangers. But sorry, I mean th- it shows that who the entire epistle is to. Right, if you write a letter to Michael, it's addressed to Michael, and it's the same with all these epistles and letters. It's Absolutely. to the Israelites.
0: In in Peter, and I think I actually had this passage slated to discuss when we get to the general epistles the the epistles of peter and james and jude in in first peter chapter 1 verse 1 peter an apostle of jesus christ to the strangers scattered throughout pontus galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia elect according to the foreknowledge of god well peter's using the same language paul used and and who when and who elected them, and of what foreknowledge of God is this speaking. And it goes right back to those same passages in Isaiah and and Amos chapter 3 and the other prophets that we just went through to show that only the children of Israel were foreknown and elect or chosen. And, and that word strangers in 1st Peter chapter 1 verse 1 is a different word than paroikos here which is what which is sojourning strangers here is parepidemos and and that's a complex greek word right um, epi means upon and Demos means a people. Democracy comes from demos, upon a people, and para can mean with or by, or, or it, it's a um, a preposition with several meanings. So, per epidemos means to be in another land upon a people. To be upon a people other than your own is the implication. So par epidemos is defined for that reason as one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives. And that's what actually par oikis means, to be by a house. The implication that the house is not your own right par oikis it is par oikia it is by a house to be within proximity of a house and it's the same preposition para so so here par epidemos is to be by or, or upon a people it, it's kind of like it's almost like repetitive like Epidemos should be enough, right? Then par Epidemos. But it's one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there. So if these people are strangers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, where are they strangers from? They have to be strangers from somewhere. And the King James just translated it as strangers as if Peter is writing to aliens... To a people of a race different than his own, and that's not what the word means. If these people are sojourners, which is a better translation of the term, because par epidemos means to be sojourning in a strange place, where are these people strangers from? And the truth is that they are actually ancient Israelites who were taken into the Assyrian captivity or who had departed from the body of Israel at an earlier time to go live in Anatolia. And they ended up living in Anatolia. And that's why Peter is calling them sojourners. But that's a digression. So that word stranger, it's totally dishonest to take these different words, paroicus, um xenos, which is the, the real world, the real word, or at least one real word that means stranger, but xenos doesn't even mean an alien. And then a word that really does mean alien which is alotrius, which is someone of, of another tribe, or alofules, which is someone of another tribe. Alotrius is just someone of another, referring to origin, well, or place. So, so there are words that literally mean stranger, as we see a stranger in English, but there are other words which mean sojourner or, or emigrant, and and they shouldn't be translated all the same because all of these words have a slightly different connotation and different meaning so if you're a sojourner you're an alien in relation to the people where you are at that strange land that you're that you're traveling in but you're only an alien in that sense you're not you you yourself you could be an alien in in the country that you go to but you can't be an alien in the country where you are from if that's where you're from if if that's that nation is your own race so the king james translations are are very unfortunate in many aspects They're not precise at all. When in fact the apostles were using precise language, the King James version and other modern Bible versions, they obscure the precise meanings which the apostles intended to use. On to Ephesians chapter two, verses twenty to twenty-two. We cannot neglect to mention once again what Paul wrote in the final three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, in regard to the Ephesians. And he said, And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building, fitly framed together, grows unto a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you are also builded together for a habitation of God through the spirit. We had just read um two nineteen. Now therefore you are no more strangers and sojourners as it has to be as it has to be translated, and, and even that word strangers in <clears throat> Ephesians 2.19, which I really didn't address here. That's Xenos, that word. It does not mean somebody of another tribe, which would be Alophilae. It doesn't mean somebody that's an outsider or, or simply of another undefined nation or race, which is an Alotrius. These words all have specific meanings. This is a xenos in Ephesians 2.19. And in Greek culture, a xenos was someone in your land who was not known to you personally, but who was entitled to the rights of, certain rights and privileges and entitled to your hospitality right so so an army of samurai come from japan into greece and they're of a different race and and that they might be seen as enemies because of that and they're clearly of a different culture, do they have a right and an expectation of hospitality? No, of course they don't. They're going to be attacked and driven out of the land. But a man from Athens who comes to um, Corinth for trade or, or for some sort of business or simply to visit a friend, he is a Zenos. He's a fellow Greek from another place who has an expectation of your hospitality. That is the word Xenos. And, and that's, that is a translation of Euripides in the Loeb Classical Library. And, and I have it here. And it was translated by a man named William Kovacs. And I don't even know if he's a Christian or a Jew. I don't know. But Kovacs, because I think that last name can go either way, but Kovacs actually translated the word Zenos throughout his translation of Euripides. And it appears often. He translated it as guest friend, because that is what it means. Guest friend. So that was translated as strangers in Ephesians 2.19. And the word that means sojourners was translated as foreigners. And and that destroys exactly what Paul is saying. It destroys it. It obfuscates and and obscures the meanings rather than translating those terms precisely. So Galatians 2.20 is the very next verse and I'm going to read it again because we're commenting on it, and I'm sorry I get off on these digressions, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So they are guest friends and sojourners, and they're no longer guest friends and sojourners. Now they are fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Earlier in this chapter, writing in verse 16, where it is evident that Paul is referring to both the Israelites of the captivities, who were the uncircumcised that he mentioned earlier, as well as to the circumcised Israelites of Judea, Paul said in reference to Christ that he might reconcile. And that's the King James Version, reconcile. And of course, you can only be reconciled with someone who you were estranged from. But you can't be reconciled with a stranger who you never knew before if you go out and meet some Chinaman and and he does you some favor or something and and he becomes your friend, that's not what we call a reconciliation. But if your brother and you have a falling out and, and he becomes estranged from you and then at some point in the future he repents and you forgive him and you become friends again, then that's a reconciliation. And there's some terms that the King James Version couldn't help but to translate properly. And usually they get reconcile and reconciliation properly. It's apocatalasso. It, it means reconcile. To reconcile back again. To bring back a former state of harmony, it has no other meaning. So they had to get that one right. They couldn't pervert that. They would have no credibility at all. that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, slain having slain the enmity thereby. So now in verse 20 here, he explains that the reconciliation of verse 16 is upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So, as we have illustrated here, throughout the prophets, and especially in Isaiah, reconciliation was promised to the children of Israel. It wasn't promised to anyone else. Who else could be reconciled if they were never Yahweh's chosen and pre-separated and ordained in the first place? Who else could be reconciled if they were never Yahweh's peculiar people in the first place? So once we translate these words correctly, seeing that they may be translated in a manner which is fully And readily agreeable to the words of the prophets. It is evident that this is also the scope of all of Paul's statements here, as we have said that Paul is not in conflict with the prophets, but rather, all of his words, once they are translated correctly, are in full agreement with the prophets. But the King James translations often leave Paul in opposition to the prophets. So we must ask, is that an honest way to interpret and translate Paul's epistles? Or is our way of interpretation more honest? Especially when we can defend our application from the lexicons and standard use of grammar, which we can. Just look it up in Liddell and Scott, or even sometimes in the Strongs. So now, seeing that Paul was writing to people who were descended from the ancient tribes of Israel, we shall move on to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. And in order to do that, we have to really read the first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 3. And we'll do so, or at least we will start off with the King James version. I don't know if you have anything to say before I begin.
1: Yeah, I I was just going to reiterate what you said, that the prophets keep going on about Israel, Israel, Israel. And and then Paul, um, you know, readdresses that and suddenly people imagine that it's different people. It's just insanity, right? It is insanity, but it proves it, it proves That
0: generation after generation after generation of priest, pastor, church scholar, theologian, they've always just gone along with the general narrative. And they've never actually examined the context and the language within the correct historical perspective, which the Old Testament lays out and which the prophets explain. They've never done it. They just take it for granted that what they learn in the se- se- seminary is true and they run off and teach that because all they really want is a license to make money. That's all they really want. A license to write books and, and make money and preach and make money. That's the, the, their real objective. So that certificate they get from a university they go along with everything they learn so that they could get that certificate because that certificate is their ticket to a, a, a nice career as a pastor or a priest or a theologian. That's all they care about. And, and this is 20 centuries of this. Actually, no. This is 19 centuries of this because first century Christianity Apostolic Christianity is nowhere near being compatible with 3rd and 4th century Roman Catholic theology.
1: It would uh, certainly be interesting if, um, you know, you could resurrect Paul and then take him into one of the churches and hear, hear him he could listen to what they actually say when they read out his epistles, right? Well, well right, but when he wanted star-struck. their attention
0: and he started to speak to them in English, they'd throw him out. They'd hate Paul. They would hate Christ. <laughs> it's incredible. These people would actually hate Paul of Tarsus if Paul could actually speak to them. Oh. It, it's disheartening, but it's incredible, but Yahweh said that we would be blind and and look at how blind we are. It's incredible. I don't have I, I mean superlatives I, I don't have enough superlatives to explain how incredible <laughs> stupendously incredible this is. <laughs> okay. From the King James Version, Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And I'm going to to address a lot of points here in, in these nine passages, right? Because that's ridiculous right there. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given to me, you word, or to me for you, right? Or on your behalf. How that, by revelation, he made known unto me the mystery. And now it is a parenthetical remark. As I wrote a four in few words. So he must have written them previously, but we don't have that epistle. That epistle didn't survive, right? As I wrote a four in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So that's a missing epistle. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That the Gentiles, which mainstream Christians interpret as non Jews, but that's not what it means, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see And that word men is in italics. It doesn't belong in the text. Because the word all, the scope of that word all, should be determined by the context of Paul's epistle. And it doesn't necessarily refer to all men as all male hominids on the planet. And to make all see, What is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ? So, the cause of which Paul spoke for this cause is the reconciliation of the nations on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Which is according to the terms outlined in the Gospels and in the books of the prophets, which Paul had just explained in chapter 2 of this epistle. The terms are outlined in the Gospels. The terms are outlined in the books of the prophets. And Paul just explained that in chapter 2. So we can't separate this chapter just because somebody came in 1,500 years later and put a chapter division here. Doesn't mean that we can separate these statements from the context of chapter 2. We have to read these statements within the context of chapter 2 for this cause. The language of the King James Version seems to obfuscate that assertion and pervert, or at least ignore, its meaning. What did Paul mean by the foundation of the found, of the apostles and the prophets? So here I'm going to compare and discuss individual clauses from that translation of those first nine verses of Ephesians chapter 3 with how we have translated the same clauses in the Christigenian New Testament. First in verse 1. Prisoner of, and I'm only selecting the phrases that I am going to discuss, rather than a whole verse. (coughs) So from verse 1. Prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And in the Christianity New Testament, that is, captive of Christ Yahshua on behalf of you of the nations. Now... This was written, this epistle was written as Paul was a prisoner in Rome, which is why he calls himself a prisoner, or a captive, as I have it. Why would Paul be a prisoner on behalf of non-Israelites when two years after he was arrested, just before he was sent to Rome, Paul professed before Herod Agrippa II, In Acts chapter 26, And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, even though they don't realize it, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. So if Paul says that he's a prisoner on behalf of the promises made to the 12 tribes, then how is Paul a prisoner for Gentiles that are non-Jews or non-Israelites, which is the common denominational perspective of the word Gentile? All the promises of God in the prophets are the hope of Israel, and they are never The hope of any Gentiles. If Paul is a prisoner on behalf of the 12 tribes, then here, writing to the Ephesians, Paul is a prisoner on behalf of the nations which came from those 12 tribes, according to what he had also explained in Romans chapter 4 in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4. So that's a huge difference of perspective.
1: And uh, mainstream commentators never, you know, go from uh, epistle to epistle and compare it or They just pick out certain verses, don't they?
0: Well, right. And, and they focus, in, in the Bible cross-references, they focus only on the prophecies that have to do with Christ in the prophets. And they ignore all of the prophets, the same prophets in the same prophecies as we demonstrated in Isaiah here this evening. They ignore the aspects which have to do with the children of Israel. They accept the church excuse that the church is Israel now. Well, where the hell did it ever say that the church was Israel, or that Israel would be a church. The truth is that the church comes of the people of Israel, but they're Israelites in the first place, because the whole scripture is only dealing with Israelites. And Paul is going to these nations that came from the Israelites, as he says over and over again. if he's in chains if he's in bonds and and I didn't cite this um this passage but maybe I should add it to the notes here and and that's in acts chapter 28 and this is right at the very end of Paul's ministry and I'm looking for it because I wanted to be exact And I'm sorry, I just, I know it's right here, but I can't, for some strange reason, I can't see it. (laughs) But it's right at the very end of the book of Acts, and, and I'll have it in a moment. In Acts chapter 28, verse 20, and I was looking before and after. For this cause, therefore, have I called you have I called for you to see you and to speak with you. And he's talking to the elders of the Judeans who are in Rome. Paul always spoke to the elders first, wherever he went, because that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. And that's one of the last passages in the book of Acts. That is at the very close to the end of Paul's life and ministry, just as this epistle to the Ephesians is also written at the end of his ministry. So Paul never changed his purpose throughout his entire ministry from one end to the other. It's for the hope of Israel. Where is the hope of Israel described? It's described back there in Isaiah, their redemption, their regathering to God, their reconciliation with God, their salvation at the hands of God. That's the hope of Israel. And Paul never changed on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We can't imagine Paul was in conflict with the prophets when he agreed with them throughout and expounded on them and the fulfillments of them, of their words. Moving on to verse 2. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God and the corresponding Greek phrase in the Christianian New Testament is translated if indeed you have heard of the management of the family of the favor of Yahweh. And as we read in Jeremiah chapter 31 and this is the only prophecy of grace in the entire New Testament in 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 the books of the prophets. Thus saith Yahweh the people who were left of the sword, that means the people who still survived of Israel after the Assyrian captivities and Babylonian captivities. The people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. This is explained in a... Different way in Revelation chapter 12, where the woman representing Israel is taken off into the wilderness to be nourished with the gospel. So that's explaining the same thing here. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest, in other words, put him off into the captivity, that's seen as a period of rest for the children of Israel. This is the only explicit prophecy of grace in the words of the prophets, and it is explicitly promised to the children of Israel in captivity. So where we once again see that word oikonomia, which, as we discussed here in reference to Galatians, is the management of a household or family then we shall translate the word in that same manner here as it can only pertain to the same children of Israel who are also the prophesied objects of the grace of God. So once again, the King James translations obscure the full meanings of the passage. And we'll move on to verse four, where in the King James we read, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And in the King James Version, that's what it says. But in the Christoghenian New Testament, it says, which reading you are able to perceive my understanding in the mystery of the anointed. Once again, we see that word Christos here, which means anointed. And as we have also explained here recently, It does not always refer to Christ, but sometimes refers to the collective body of Christ, to Israel as the anointed people. The people of Christ, the nations, are the subject of Paul's discourse here, and not Christ himself. He's not speaking of the mystery of Christ. He's speaking of the mystery of the anointed. And we'll discuss this further when we get to verse 9. For now, we'll move on to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. As it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That word unto is pretty important here. So I'm going to go to... Back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. Unto. There is actually no preposition in the text. There is only nouns and an article in the dative case. And the dative case can be represented with prepositions in English, because we don't have case in English, right? One word in the genitive case, um, anthropon, that is a plural genitive noun, and anthropos means man, but in plural, it's men, but because it's in the genitive case in Greek, In English, to express that case, we have to read. We have to infer a preposition. So, how we infer a preposition depends on the context. And the genitive case, we could write from men or of men, depending on the context. If there's no explicit preposition right now sometimes there could be an explicit preposition like apo and apo we would have to say from men but if it's just anthropon in some contexts we might infer the preposition and write from men in english but we have to at least write of men in English in order for the case, the genitive case, to be reflected in our language. Because like I said, English nouns generally don't have case. Now, the genitive case can express possession. In in, in English, we do have an expression of possession with that apostrophe S, right? Bill's pencil, B-I-L-L apostrophe S, where in Greek you would write the pencil, in. that's a noun, and it would be in a nominative case, so we know that the, the pencil is the subject of the statement, of Bill, and the word Bill would be in the genitive case but we don't have that in English, right? So we have to add prepositions and that's what I'm getting at. So here, where it says in his holy ambassadors and prophets, there is no preposition. And the King James actually created an idea in this passage Unto, which is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets. As if this mystery was being revealed to the prophets at this time, at the time Paul wrote the epistles. And that's a lie. The apostles had already been transmitting the gospel. The prophets had already written. Paul's talking about these mysteries being revealed in the apostles and prophets. So how do we find them? We open the books of the prophets. What Paul's saying here actually reinforces what Paul said in the closing verses of chapter 2. So here we must examine what is revealed in the prophets. The King James Version created a lie when they wrote unto. With a simple preposition, they change the entire meaning of Paul's words. These promises are in the books of the prophets. And they're being revealed in the gospel because this is how Yahweh God chose to fulfill these prophecies. Paul's not talking about these things being revealed to apostles and prophets in his time. He's saying that these things are revealed in the holy apostles and prophets who already wrote and who were already transmitting the gospel. And that's a huge difference. He's not laying the books of the prophets aside so knowing this we must examine what is revealed in the prophets and all we can find in the prophets is the redemption grace and salvation of the 12 tribes of the ancient children of israel but there is nothing about jesus having come for gentiles or for any non-israelite so either the king james interpretation is wrong along with those of the Roman Catholic Church and all modern Christian denominations, or the prophets are wrong. And Paul was referring to different prophets. However, where Paul quoted the prophets, he quoted the prophets which we have in our Bibles. So they are not different, and they are not wrong. <laughs> wow.
1: Yeah, as you said, where they say "onto," it sounds like at that very time, they've just realized that Jesus was for everybody, right? That it's just new idea that's only just be revealed. Well, right.
0: And it's not. It's the old idea. It's something, uh, okay, in chapter 2, if Paul says, which is, Built and and let me scroll back because I want to get the language, I want to get it right, right? So I got to go see how I translated it, or at least how the King James and are built upon the foundation of the prophets, of the apostles and the prophets in verse 20 of chapter 2. That word that's translated in the king james and are built that is a verbal participle so in the present tense we would say and are being built right it's a masculine plural verbal participle but it's in the aorist tense here and it's passive so in the aorist tense it describes an action that has already begun in the past but may still be continuing. So the action isn't necessarily completed, but it's a past tense because the action began at some point in the past. And the aorist tense, it, it's a very difficult tense of Greek. It's very difficult to appropriately describe in English in just a few words. So that's probably the best that I could describe it. And there's other interpretations that claim that the Aorist tense doesn't have a point in time at all. But I disagree with that. It describes an action that has already begun at some point in the past, even though it's not necessarily completed. So to me, it describes an ongoing process which may or may not have been completed. It, it, it's, and, and that's at the time that the word was used, not necessarily at today's point in time, right? 2,000 years later. So using the Aorist tense in relation to the foundation being built upon the apostles and the prophets, once again, Paul must be referring to the prophets of the Old Testament and not to anybody who might claim to be a prophet today or when Paul wrote, he's not talking about them. It's not revealed unto them. It's revealed in them, in the prophets that already exist. So yeah, that's a huge difference. That one tiny little preposition, unto, that they just stuck in there. Is a huge difference. So. This brings us to. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6. And the King James version. Has. That the Gentiles. Should be fellow heirs. And of the same body. And partakers of his promise. In Christ. By the gospel. Now there's slight differences in the actual Greek. That the christianian new testament was translated from but we have those nations which are joint heirs which are joint heirs not which should be joint heirs and a joint body and partners of the promise in christ Yeshua through the good message and i didn't really um As you were provided my notes ahead of time, I really didn't plan on discussing the grammatical aspects of these verses. But as I began to present them here, I realized that I probably, I probably should have, right? So, first, that this word, that the King James Version translated as should be, should be addressed, right? should be that that in english reflects what we call the subjunctive mood in of a verb verbs in greek have tenses that refer to the time of the action past present future and they have moods and that the mood refers to the let me say that the mood, I don't know if this is entirely correct, according to grammar books, but the mood refers to the possibility of the action in a way, right? And then there is the voice, which is whether it is passive or active, and, and that refers to the, or medium, which refers to the recipient of the action, right? In in the... um. In the active voice, the subject of the verb is the initiator of the action and the object of the verb receives the action. In the medium voice, the initiator of the action is the subject, but he is also the receiver of the action. In other words, he does it to himself in plain language and And, in the passive voice, the initiator or or of the is someone other than the subject and and the the person is receiving the action is different than the initiator of the action right so if if I describe you as falling then I would have to use the passive voice in reference to you, right? Of that verse that you are fallen. If I describe you as throwing a ball, then I would use the active voice of the verb to throw, right? But we don't have um, moods and, and voices in our English verbs, just like we don't have case in our English nouns. We have to describe those things with with. In, in the way that we use the verbs and in the context and sometimes with other words. So this verb, inahi, to be, is in the present active and it's an infinitive verb where the King James translates it as should be and that would be a subjunctive verb because the subjunctive denotes a possibility like should or might something should happen or might happen so even that is basically making a lie and the infinitive which is in the present active sense it's in the it's in the present it's in the active voice and in the present tense and it's an infinitive, it's not a subjunctive, is which are. It's R A R E in the Christianity New Testament. Okay? Those nations which are joint heirs. Paul is making a statement. He is not expressing a possibility concerning the nations. He is making a direct and definite statement concerning the nations. So the King James Version creates a lie by making this present active verb, which is an infinitive, by making it a subjunctive and writing should, that they should be. In other words, they should follow Christ so that they could become heirs. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is making a plain statement. Those nations which are joint heirs. That's what he's saying. The nations which Paul described are fellow heirs. They're not going to become fellow heirs, which is what the King James translation is suggesting. Paul was preaching the gospel of reconciliation. Paul never preached anything concerning Christ to non-Israelites, not even to the Adamic Jepethite Athenians of Acts chapter 17 or the Lycaonians of Acts chapter 14, neither of whom are Israel. As we read Paul's commission in Acts chapter 9, where Christ was speaking to Hananias, it says, But the prince said to him, or the Lord, if you will, said to him go for he is a vessel chosen by me who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of israel the nations are already joint heirs paul's making a plain statement and they turn it into a lie by preaching by, by inserting that word should that's a lie just like unto is a lie and these are such subtle lies that most people would never recognize them. That brings us to Ephesians 3.8, where Paul said that I should preach among the Gentiles. I'm going to go check out that verb. That's an infinitive aorist, medium, verb for to preach good tidings or to preach the gospel. So it's just simply preach, which is fine in this context, in Ephesians 3, 8, in the King James Version. But the Christianian New Testament says to announce the good message to the nations, because there's no I should. That would be a subjunctive first-person verb. A subjunctive verb of the first person. But here we have an infinitive verb. And the infinitive verb doesn't have um, person. Like I, we, he, she, it, you, they different forms of verbs <clears throat> that tell us the number of the verb, whether I did it or we did it. That's two different forms in Greek, right? Or you did it. That's three different forms. And, and then you plural is a fourth form. And, and there's all these different forms in the endings or stems of Greek verbs, which indicate to us who did it. Or who committed the action, right? Did a plurality of people? Did one person? Did I? Did you? So we don't have that in, in English. We have to add words. We have to add pronouns. We have to add those pronouns into the text. So in a first-person pronoun, in a, in a first-person verb, we would say, I preach. But this is an infinitive So that's a minor difference, but it's to announce the good message to the nations. And all the rest of Paul's words here make perfect sense when we realize that the nations to whom he preached the gospel were the nations which formed out of the promises to Abraham, as Paul himself attested in Romans chapter 4, and the many promises to the Israelites that they would become a great nation, that they would become a company of nations, that they would become many nations. And all of that happened from the time of captivity in Egypt and ensuing over the 1,500 years from the Exodus to the time of Christ. You can only truly appreciate the context in which Paul is writing If you understand the Old Testament, if you understand the prophets, and then if you translate these words literally rather than adding stuff that shouldn't be there, like unto the prophets and apostles. (coughs) Another phrase in Ephesians 3, 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ, we translate the unsearchable riches of the anointed in the Christian New Testament. And this is a matter of perspective. But we would assert that the riches of Christ are the fulfillments of the promises which he had made to his people Israel. So the passage may be read either way. And that brings us to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9, which isn't quite at the end of our commentary on ephesians but we're nearing that we're approaching it the king james version has and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in god who created all things by jesus christ and it's not really the translation that is bad there it's the greek manuscript that would have to be represented in the king james version the christianity the testament has and to enlighten all concerning the management of the household of the mystery which was concealed from the ages by yahweh by whom all things are established and that is um, a crucial difference the fellowship of the mystery or the management of the household of the mystery so my notes here are going to be derived from my November, November 2015 commentary on this chapter of Ephesians. It seems like yesterday, but it was over five years ago. The majority text adds the phrase translated as by Jesus Christ to the end of this verse. It doesn't occur in any of the ancient Greek manuscripts. It's not found in the Nestle aland land Novum Testamentum Grecae. And there is something else which is not found in the Nestle aland land text. In any of the ancient manuscripts, and that's the noun koinonia. So we learned from the interlinear Greek New Testament by George Rickard Berry. now the Nestle Aland text right it only the, the Novum Testamentum greca, which is the most popular and most scholarly edition of the Greek New Testament. the Nestle Aland text only works with manuscripts that are found in the ancient. Uncials and papyrus of, of the first centuries of Christianity. The great uncials go up to about the 8th or ninth century AD. And then they stopped making Unkiels. They, they only started using miniscule, which is a different form of text, a different form of writing. And with miniscule, we have the manuscripts of the majority text, which go up to about the 15th or 16th century, the the ones that are considered authoritative. Okay. This word, koinonia, which is fellowship in the King James Version, in verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 3, is not found in any of those manuscripts. None. Not one. According to the nestle A. Land, Novum Testament in Greek and all of the alternate readings it contains in all of those manuscripts. So I only learned from the Interlinear Greek New Testament by George Ricker Berry, and his New Testament is based on the, the critical editions which were published in the sixteenth century, seventeenth, sixteenth, seventeenth, and eighteenth centuries. Right. He did not base his interlinear New Testament on the Novum Testamentum Grece or the oldest manuscripts. He based his New Testament on the readings of Tischendorf and Westcott and Hort and and men like that, right? So he informs us in his work that the manuscripts of the 16th and 17th centuries, which were edited by Stephanus and Elzevir, which were in turn based on manuscripts that were first edited by Erasmus, that it is those manuscripts which have koinonia, which is fellowship in this passage, rather than oikonomia. And since the King James translators... Employed the manuscript of Stephanus in their making their translation, we read fellowship here in the King James version instead of oikonomia, which is the management of the household. Oikonomia is the management of a household, but the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Graece does not generally consider the readings of such late manuscripts. And it attests that the manuscripts of the majority text all have oikonomia and not koinonia. And that's a huge difference. Advocates of the so-called majority text usually do not even realize that the King James translators sometimes departed from that text. And therefore, they themselves did not consider it to be an absolute authority. Neither should the Textus Receptus be confused with the Majority Text. The Textus Receptus is properly only an edited version of some of the manuscripts of the Majority Text, which was originally completed by the presumably, and I'm going to say presumably because he's not really, the presumably Dutch printer Elzever, who I really think was a Jew, but Elzether is an Arabic name. It's not a Germanic name. Elzeber, by that name, that was his name, that was their family name, and he was not Dutch. So here we encounter the Greek word, oikonomia, once again. And once again, our view of the scriptures and the purpose of the gospel governs the manner in which we translated the word. But you know, they substituted that word koinonia, Sometime in, in between the time of Erasmus or the time of Stephanus and the time up to George Rickard Berry, some of those editors somewhere tran- actually substituted oikonomia for koinonia. But if Christ said, and to enlighten all concerning the fellowship of the mystery— and then they add the words by Jesus Christ into the manuscripts, then it seems that the focus of the mystery is on Christ. But the real mystery isn't anything at all to do with Christ, which Paul discusses here. The mystery is the family of Israel and what happened to them after they went off into captivity. So they're changing the focus of Paul's comments. They're taking it off the people and putting it onto Jesus. And they're creating lies, doing it. Paul had a stewardship. But that stewardship was the management of the household of Yahweh, which was the family of the faith, as he called them in Galatians chapter 6 which are the children of Israel and Judah being reconciled to God in Christ as it was prophesied in places such as Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 7 and 8, where it says, and I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, not necessarily to return to Palestine. There's some very poetic language and and a lot of things to do with that, that seem to do with Palestine, really don't, terms like Zion and even Jerusalem. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity because only they needed forgiveness for sin, whereby they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities whereby they have sinned and whereby they have transgressed against me. So the mystery is where they are and who they are. And that is what Paul was revealing. That is how he told the Galatians that they were under the law and that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. That is how he told the Ephesians all of the things which he told them here. And that's the context of the gospel.
1: And we see that the uh, other apostles, for example, had no idea that, like, the Romans were Israelites and, you know, the Greeks.
0: well, Well, right, but Yahweh told Peter in Acts chapter 10, do not call common what I have cleansed, and we've just seen in Jeremiah what Yahweh cleansed. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. So Paul told the Romans that they had the truth of God, and they turned it into a lie in chapter 1 of his epistle to the Romans. And Paul told the Romans in chapter 15 of that epistle that Christ was a minister of the circumcision to keep the, the promises which were made to the fathers. Not for any other reason. What promises were made to the fathers? That Gentiles would become their seed? No. That their seed would become many nations? Yes. Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made under the fathers. That their seed would become many nations. And that they would be his people. That's the promises made under the fathers. So if Christ is confirming that, that's what he's confirming. So this is the management of a family. It's not fellowship with aliens. It's reconciliation of the alienated. There is a huge, huge difference. So just a few verses later, in Ephesians chapter 3, from verse 14, Paul wrote, For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father from whom the whole family in the heavens and upon earth is named, in order that he would give to you, in accordance with the riches of his honor, the ability to be strengthened through his spirit in the inner man, to administer the anointed. Because the people are the subject here and not Jesus. Paul doesn't have to administer to Jesus to administer the anointed through the faith in your hearts, being planted and founded in love. And I didn't even consider how the King James Version translated that passage. I don't know if you want to look at it briefly, but I'm going to take a peek. They do have, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, In verse 17. Where we have to administer the anointed. Through the faith in your hearts. Okay. If it's said that Christ may dwell. In your hearts. Then the grammar. Would out of necessity. Christ would be the subject of the verb. And not the object of the verb. So. The word for Christ, Christos, would have to be, by grammatical necessity, it would have to be in the nominative case, because the nominative case denotes the subject of the verb, not the object of the verb. And where the King James Version has that Christ may dwell in your hearts. Christ is the subject of the verb but not the object. So Christ would have to be written in the nominative case. But the accusative case reflects the object of the verb. And the object of a verb is usually written in the accusative case, and that's what it is here in Ephesians 3:17. Christos is in the accusative case and therefore Christos is the object of the verb which is katoike sahi from katoikeo. Katoike sahi is a an infinitive aorist active verb and Christos is the Accusative case, object of that verb. Christ isn't doing the dwelling. Christ, Christos, is the object of the verb. And sahi is being done to the object. So katoikeisahi can mean to settle in, to colonize, to inhabit, settle, dwell or it could also mean to administer or to be administered as a secondary meaning of the verb. And that is the meaning that I chose to represent the verb here in this passage because the Christos is the object of a verb and if it's the object of this verb, it has to, Christ has to be the object of the verb. So I prefer to interpret Christos as referring to the anointed, meaning the whole family. And they are being administered to, through the faith in their hearts, by the hearing of the gospel, being planted and founded in love. So those, that, that translation is based on context just as, it is, just as much as it is on grammar. Paul of Tarsus knew that all of the promises of the Old Testament, including the New Covenant, were for Israel alone. And therefore the children of Israel are also the family of the faith. The mystery discussed here by Paul is clearly not of Christ, meaning Yahshua. Rather, the mystery is this. If Abraham had descendants as the sand of the sea, Genesis chapter 22, verse 17, and in that manner became the father of many nations, thus thy seed shall be, Genesis chapter 17, verse 4, as Sarah would be a mother of many nations, Genesis chapter 17, verse 16. And this promise was passed down specifically through Jacob, Genesis chapter 28, Genesis chapter 35. And Paul came to know where to find all of these nations so that he professed that the mystery was revealed to him. Today, Through a thorough study of ancient history, archaeology, and language, the Israelite origins of the people of Europe can be established with certainty. But this was not manifest to the scholars of Paul's time, nor to very many since that time. But the fact that this mystery of which Paul speaks had not been made known to men aforetime is also a matter of the prophecy of Isaiah, where in Isaiah chapter 42, we read, Who is blind but my servant, as my messenger that I sent? Who is blind as he that is perfect, as and blind as the Lord's servant? Now, earlier in Isaiah... Israel is considered to be the servant of of Yahweh God. And that's more explicit in Isaiah chapter 41 in verse 8, where it says, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. So when we see servant, who is blind but my servant, just a few verses later in chapter 42, we can't imagine it's referring to some different servant. It has to be referring to the servant of Isaiah chapter 41, verse 8. So the context proves that as it goes on to say in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 20, seeing many things thou observest not opening the ears he heareth not yahweh is well pleased for his righteousness sake he will magnify the law and make it honorable but this is a people what people the 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 servant which is jacob but this is a people robbed and spoiled they are all of them snared in holes And they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey and none delivers. For a spoil and none saith restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will hearken and hear for the time to come? Who gave Jacob for a spoil and Israel to the robbers? Did not Yahweh he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he has poured out upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it has sent set him on fire round about, yet he knew it not, and it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. The restoration mentioned here in Isaiah does indeed come to Jacob in the form of Christ himself, where Paul said that the nations are joint heirs in the promises. That is the restoration. The reference to prison houses is a reference to the nations to which the Israelites would be sent and scattered. And Christ came to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty them that are bruised, referring to those same children of Israel, which he declared while reading from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, citing those very passages. The blindness mentioned here is also a matter of prophecy. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 10, where Yahweh had informed the children of Israel, That he has poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers, has he covered. Blindness is a consequence of disobedience, and therefore, in their period of punishment, the children of Israel forgot who they were. In Christ, Paul received a revelation, which is recorded in Acts chapter 9, where he was appointed by Christ to bear his name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel, as the phrase is translated in the Christogenean New Testament. Through the scriptures, the Spirit led Paul to the discovery of those same children of Israel to whom he brought the gospel. So here we shall also reference Isaiah chapter 29 verses 13 to 14 in regard to the same mystery of which Paul speaks where the prophet writes concerning Israel and he says, Wherefore, the Lord said, For as much as this people draws near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but I have removed their heart far from me and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. The wisdom of the wise men has perished, and it is still perished as they scoff at the gospel of the reconciliation of true Israel to Yahweh their God. The understanding of prudent men is hid and it is a struggle indeed to reach our people with this message of the true gospel of Christ. So we would encourage all Christians to read the whole of Isaiah as well as the other prophets in this historical context because covenant theology is the profession and acceptance of the entire word of God without corrupting the meanings of the plain words, which the King James Version has done consistently. They've consistently corrupted the meanings of words, twisted them, mistranslated them in order to make Paul say something different than what he says.
1: So, so, Bill, the, the mystery was um, all this scattering the prophets talk about. They didn't truly know which nations uh, they would become. And um, as for the nations in Europe, they didn't truly know their origin. They had fantastic tales. And with, with, if you actually believe, Paul, then it's all revealed that the, these nations, like Romans, Greeks, actually were Israelites. And that's what the prophets were talking about all along. And that they'd all be reconciled together, uh, the house of Judah, house of Israel, all together. Once the Germanic tribes came in, especially they all, the new nations were formed. Right, the body of Christ.
0: Well, well, right, absolutely, and and that's exactly the story of the prophets, and we have hints in history. What we have the classics where we could trace people. And their origins. And we could clearly trace that the Scythians and the Cimmerians, who made up the later populations of of the tribes of the Germans, we can clearly trace them back to the regions of, of Mesopotamia and the Near East. But they're not Persians, and they're not Assyrians, and they're not of the other Genesis 10 nations. So where are they from? And and we can clearly connect Timuroy to the Cymru of of the Assyrian inscriptions, and we can see through all of the Greek historians that these people are also the Saka or the Scythians, and they're equated to the Saka and the Scythians. That the and, and, I mean Herodotus mentions an Assyrian inscription. He, he mentions the Amergian Chimerians, he called them. And there is a corresponding Assyrian inscription, which makes the same exact description that Herodotus made in relation to these Amergian Chimerians. And it uses the term, I believe it uses the term Saka any in inscription and and i've discussed this inscription in in my papers on germanic origins that herodotus the language the rest of the language is precisely exact and herodotus must have been seeing the same inscription in order to make a statement i, I mean it's the same language where it de- describes these emergian Scythians who wore tall pointed caps So so there's many um, clues and hints in, in, in the classical histories that there's many definite statements in the classical histories and the inscriptions by which we can connect the dots. But there's also the clear statements of men like Flavius Josephus who did understand that those that innumerable multitude of people that lived across the Euphrates were the 10 tribes. And when we go back to the time of Flavius Josephus, the only innumerable multitude of people that lived across the Euphrates at that time were the Scythians, who were also called the Saka. So there, there are many ways that we could prove who we are. And, and, of course, there's all the earlier migrations by sea. But these things generally were not known. The implications weren't understood that these were the actual Israelites taken into captivity. They didn't understand them. They didn't have a reason to understand them. The Israelites that went into captivity were pagan. They weren't reading the prophets. They hadn't read the prophets in generations before they went into captivity, they were pagan. So Yahweh said they would be blind and, and they had no choice in the matter. They were blind. They blinded themselves, but that that that's still doesn't mean that, that it didn't happen the way Yahweh said it would in Isaiah and the other prophets. I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that or any other questions, but yeah, that's right. The way you explained it is fair.
1: No, no, I think that, that sums it up. Uh, and as we keep saying, um, the, the translators were very sneaky. They tried to keep um, about 90, you know five percent of the translation accurate, but just the odd words here, and, and once it's cleared up, you can see it's constantly talking about Israel and the promises of the dispersed Israelites, right, becoming one. Yes,
0: absolutely. And, and that's the whole scope of Ephesians. That, that's where he starts out with, with the, um, the handwriting that's against us. And, and that handwriting against us had nothing to do with any Gentiles. That, that's the ordinances in the law. That, that's the laws which prevent the reconciliation of Yahweh God and his people. That were blotted out on the cross and paul explained that in romans chapter 7 where when the husband dies the wife is free from the law so once yahweh came as a man and died in the form of yahshua christ then upon being resurrected he could was in a position to redeem his people because they were symbolically freed from the law. They were freed from the condemnation in the law. And Yahweh God shows us the lengths which he would go to to keep his law by dying on their behalf. Christ being God, Christ is also the son, and he is therefore the kinsman redeemer to bring Israel back to himself. Because God transcends creation, he can actually transcend his law without breaking it. He kept his law, but he transcends it at the same time. So he died to fulfill the law, which released Israel from the punishments of the law. Because when the husband dies, the wife is no longer under the law of the husband, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 7. So that makes reconciliation possible. I don't know if we could add anything to this if we should. And and this no, is
1: think it's great as it is.
0: Almost three hours, so <laughs> <laughs>
1: we won't be here. Next you said week. at the start it'd be a long one.
0: Yes, we, we will not be here next week. I will be on a road. I can't possibly prepare these on the road. I I I just can't. So. I will probably let this run on the live segment Saturday nights for two weeks. Okay. And I will see you in a couple of weeks. Yeah.
1: Have a great trip then.
0: Thank you. Praise Yahweh. And good night. Yeah.
1: Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European people. Thank you.